I'd, forgot, I'd forgotten that, that that piece had a couple of verses and, and choruses, so I thought singing it twice would have been, been a little bit too much. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 9. We're going to have a look at these verses this morning, but not until a little bit later in, in our sermon. But they will be useful to have those open before you. <clears throat> One day a police inspector went to visit a, a primary school and he was asked to take the RE class in, in one of the classes. So he came in and the kids were sitting there waiting for him to take the class. And he thought he'd begin with a, a well-known Bible story. So he asked the question, boys and girls, who knocked down the walls of Jericho? And he was expecting a flood of hands to go up and, and to give the answer. But, but no hands went up. And as he, he looked, he noticed the, the children sort of looking nervous and shuffling in their seats. Eventually, one wee fella put his hand up. He said, sir, my name's Bruce Jones. I don't know who did it, but it wasn't me. And the, the police inspector, uh, maybe a bit old school type of policeman, but he, he wasn't too impressed. He, he thought this wee fellow was, was terribly cheeky. So he took him to the headmaster, um, and he explained to the headmaster what had happened there in the class. And after, after a moment, the, the headmaster reflected on the situation, and, and he, he said to the policeman, well, Bruce Jones there, I know Bruce Jones, he's an honest type of a fella. If he says he didn't do it, he didn't do it. So by this stage, the headmaster was beginning to, or the, the policeman, sorry, was beginning to lose patience with this school entirely. The, the children were cheeky and the, the headmaster was ignorant. So he wrote a letter to the Department of Education and he explained the situation to them. A couple of days later in the post, he got his reply. Um, the reply, read like this. Dear sir, we are sorry to hear about the walls of Jericho. We regret that nobody has admitted to causing the damage. If you send us an estimate, we'll see what we can do about the cost. It's a, a stupid wee story, but it does illustrate a point that maybe in the past there would have been times when everybody in society, particularly in a country like Britain, would have known who knocked down the walls of Jericho would have known that story and lots of other Bible stories too. But that just wouldn't be the case today. A lot of non-Christian people really wouldn't know the story of the Bible at all. Now when I say that, I don't want that to sound like a criticism of, of non-Christian people or those outside the church, because I think in a sense the same holds true inside the church a little bit as well. We're not as familiar as we used to be with the, the story of the Bible. A lot of Christians today would probably have parts of the Bible that they really love uh, and parts of the Bible that they hold dearly to, but there'd be other parts that they maybe just wouldn't have a clue about. And in particular, I would say most of us would probably struggle to say what the Bible as a whole is all about. You know, if I asked you that question this morning, or if I passed around paper and a pen and asked you to write an answer in one sentence, 
what's the Bible as a whole all about? I think we'd have quite a number of different answers. And probably a lot of us would struggle to to think of an answer at all. Well, what we're going to do over the next seven or eight weeks on Sunday mornings is we're going to go through the whole of the Bible. It's a bit like, you know, when you did English in school and you had to read the the massive big novels, there was always a study notes, a very thin thing that told you the edited highlights, if you like, of the bigger story. In a sense, that's what we're going to do. We're going to try and pick up some of the main highlights and main uh, things that happen through the Bible so that each one of us has an idea of the whole story. Now, although the Bible covers a lot of ground, it has one, uh, one subject in particular at the heart of it, and that's Jesus Christ and what God offers the world through Jesus. When I was preaching here a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning, Jesus actually told us that. In a passage that we read that morning, Jesus said to his disciples, after his resurrection, he said this, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus is saying, everything in the Bible points to me. There's nothing in the Old Testament that doesn't in some way point to to my life, my death, and my resurrection. He's also reminding us that his life and death and resurrection aren't a plan B. This is what God had always intended. So that's very much the subject of the Bible, Jesus Christ. But the problem is that the subject of the Bible, Jesus, doesn't appear until you've read three quarters of the way through it. Is there an overarching theme? Is there some way of understanding the Bible that begins on page one and ends on the last verses of Revelation. I want to suggest to you that there is, and this is what we're going to spend our time these next few weeks thinking about. The overarching theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. From the first verses of Genesis right through to the last verses of Revelation, this is what the Bible is all about. Now, I hope that'll become clearer as I I talk over the next weeks. But just before we we charge into that, let me try and convince you that I at least might be right. One thing that convinces me that the kingdom of God is the, the overarching theme of the Bible is that it's the key theme to what Jesus taught. Whenever Jesus arrived on earth and began his own public teaching ministry, what what were the first things that the gospels tell us he said? He gathered people around him, and he said, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. What Jesus is saying is all the stuff that the Bible has been teaching about the kingdom of God is now coming true in me. Bear with me. It'll probably take me a week or two to convince you and also to show you what we mean here. This, is, this takes a wee bit of thinking about, but see, once you get this, all of a sudden the Bible as a whole makes a whole lot of sense. And a lot of things that Jesus says in the Gospels make sense in a way that they never did before. The theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. One Bible scholar, and his ideas have helped me to think about this a little bit, a guy called Graham Goldsworthy, 
he defines the kingdom of God in a very simple way. He says that the kingdom of God is the place where God's people are in God's place and under God's blessing and rule. That's what we're going to be thinking about. uh, And bear with me and you'll see how this all comes together. If you're with us here in January and February, you'll know that I preached from the the first 11 chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 to 11. Now this morning, you might have got nervous because we read from chapter 12. It doesn't mean that I'm planning to to go at the same pace right through the Bible. Um, I don't know if I live long enough to to finish that project off. What I'm saying now is that we're we're gonna speed up quite considerably. And we're going to go from Genesis 12 through to the end of Revelation in seven weeks. It took us seven weeks to do 11 chapters. Now we're going to do the rest in about seven or eight weeks. Those 11 chapters, and particularly chapters 1 and 2, show us the beginnings of the Bible's teaching about the kingdom of God. Do you remember Genesis chapter 1 and 2? We discover there what, what we could call the pattern of God's kingdom. Adam and Eve are God's people. They live in God's place, a wonderful garden, a beautiful environment that he's created for them, and they live under God's rule and God's blessing. That is the pattern of the kingdom. If you turn with me to the the back page of your bulletin, I've printed up a wee table there that'll help you to, to follow what I'm talking about here. I just said a moment ago, the categories we're thinking in, God's people living in God's place under God's blessing, down the left-hand side of that table in bold. The first column beside that is describing what happened in Genesis 1 and 2, the pattern of the kingdom. Adam and Eve are God's people. They're living in God's place, a perfect garden, and they're enjoying perfect relationships in God's presence. Well, friends, I can go through this pretty quickly because we have covered this ground recently. If Genesis 1 and 2 was a glowing and a hugely encouraging start to the story of humankind, Genesis 3, if you remember, is just tragic. It's just the most deflating turn that any story could ever take. It's the story of how Adam and Eve broke relationship with God. You'll remember we talked about this for a while, how Adam and Eve took an apple or a fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you remember what we said about that? We said that the the key issue here is not somebody taking a fruit they shouldn't have taken. They've taken a fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In effect, what Adam and Eve did was they said, from now on, God, you're not in charge anymore. We're going to make our own rules we're going to be in charge of how we rule our lives. So you have a situation where the kingdom of God that had been established, God is is the king, but his citizens have rebelled against him. So that whole thing, that whole wonderful world that God has created breaks down. And you see that if you look again at the wee table, you'll see that in the next column across. As a result of Genesis 3, we move into the perished kingdom Human beings aren't God's people naturally anymore. 
because we find that we, we easily live lives of rebellion against Him. We've been banished from the immediate presence of God, the kind of presence of God that Adam and Eve were enjoying. And finally, because our lives are marked by disobedience, rather than living under God's rule and blessing, our, our natural state is to live under God's curse. As I said just a moment ago, I think that's just the most tragic thing that I've ever, I've ever come across. And it's a very tragic thing to discover right at the, near the beginning of our Bibles. I want to refer one last time back to that series on Genesis 1 to 11, and then I promise I won't mention it again. Genesis 1 to 11, if you remember, one thing we noticed there that there was a cycle in those chapters. I don't know if you can remember the cycle. The cycle was that time and time again, God's people sinned. And time and time again, God acted, responded to that sin as He must do because He's a perfect God. He responded with judgment. But the lovely thing was that just as inevitable as God's judgment was His grace. Every single time, God responded to to the sin with judgment, yes, but always with grace, to say there's always a way back. There's always a way for you to be my people once more. We noticed that cycle, and we went through it a few times in chapters 1 to 11. You may remember that in chapter 11, when we looked at the story of the people of Babel, we noticed something, something a bit disturbing. The people sin. They're rebellious against God. God acts in judgment. But there was no grace. There didn't seem to be any, any fullness to the cycle in this occasion. If you ask me, if you read from Genesis 1 through to 11, it's a pretty rubbish ending. If that's all our Bible had to say, it would make for a really rubbish ending. It reminds me of, of a time when I think it was December 2001 when I went to see the first of the Lord of the Rings films. Um, I've probably given this away a few times in the past. I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to Lord of the Rings. I'd been waiting for years to go and see that opening film. And I remember sitting in York Gate. I think it was the Saturday matinee. It was one of the earliest opportunities to go and watch it. And I'd, for three hours, I'd watched this, and I thought it was just brilliant. Probably one of the most powerful films I'd ever seen. And I was sitting there in silence. Do you know the way you do when you watch a very powerful film? It's just like for a while, there's nothing you can say. Well, I was brought back down to earth with a bump by a teenage voice in the pew behind me. That was rubbish. That was the worst ending I've ever seen. And if you've seen that film, you might sympathize with um, the, the guy in the pew behind me. I wish now that I'd turned round and said to him, don't worry, that's not the end. That's, that's not the end of this story. It's only the end of the beginning. I realize now that he was probably feeling low for the rest of the year until he, he realized there was a part two to follow. Friends, if, if the Bible ended with Genesis chapter 11, we'd be entitled to say the same. That was rubbish. That's the worst ending to a book or to a story I've ever seen. 
If what happened at Babel really is the end, we sin and God judges, if that's all there is to say, then then it's a rubbish ending. Friends, we've just read together from Genesis chapter 12, the passage Sheila read for us this morning. You mightn't have picked up on this because it's so long since we covered the other stuff. One wee quick thing to notice. Everything that God promises to Abraham in those first nine verses reverses the judgment that fell on the people of Babel. Babel was all about God scattering the people through the earth and saying, no, you can't live together under my blessing anymore. And then in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, the promise is that God is going to gather a people together and he's going to bless them. I want to say something about, see Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3? You may, you may just think that they, they're a normal part of the Bible. Once you read those three verses, the rest of the Bible is based on those three verses. God makes a promise there to Abraham that the rest of the Bible will work out and explain. John Stott says this about these verses. It may be truly said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises of God. Let's look at the verses again. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and I will be, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There are three things in those promises. You won't have picked up on them yet, because we're just beginning down this road. But whenever you see them, they won't surprise you. The first thing in this promise is people. Abraham's descendants are going to become the new people of God. The second thing we notice here is land or place. God commands Abraham in verse 1, leave your homeland because I'm going to send you to a new place. And of course, it's the promised land of Canaan uh, eventually for the Jewish people. And the third thing is blessing. God promises Abraham that his descendants are going to be blessed. And not only they, but through them the whole world you see, you see how this is all fitting in with what we have been saying this morning about the kingdom of God? This promise to Abraham is the next stage in the development of the kingdom of God. Look again one last time at the bulletin. Under the heading there, the promised kingdom, we see God's people, that's Abraham's descendants, in God's place, the promised land of Canaan, and they're under God's rule and therefore enjoying God's blessing. I'm sorry that this morning that had to be almost a bit like a lesson at school because we had to introduce some ideas. But as we go through this, it's going to be very exciting to see how the whole of the, the, whole of the Bible actually tells one story, um, and it's the story of the kingdom of God. Let me close for this morning. It must have been really hard 
for Abraham to believe that when God called him. Those massive promises that God makes to him in verses 1 to 3 of Genesis. It must have been hard for him to believe that, but he did. And friends, the reason that Abraham was acceptable to God is because he believed God's promises of a grace that God was going to work in his life and work in these ways. One thing I want to say to you this morning is that it's always that way with God and how he works in our lives. The means that God uses might change, but it's always us responding to some gracious promise of God. We live in 2005, and what God offers to us is different. It's, it's a developed version of what he had offered to Abraham because Jesus has come and he's lived and died and risen again. He fulfills, in a sense, everything that went before him. We stand, in a, in a sense, in the same position as Abraham, where people who are offered the gracious promises of God. Nowadays, the people who are, who are part of God's kingdom are those who receive Jesus. God's people are those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Those who, who live in the place where God blesses them are those who follow Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. It's always been this way. God in His grace offers us to be citizens of His kingdom. And we, for our part, must respond by receiving that invitation. Let's join together and pray.